We are in John chapter 12. If you would go there this morning, John chapter 12, we're going to um, continue in our study. It's uh, been quite a journey in John. We've broken rhythm a couple times, going to do it next week. In fact, next week, Mother's Day, let's not forget that everyone, Mother's Day next week, uh, we're going to begin a series called Unexpected Heroes. You guessed it the first week on Mother's Day. You can guess who's going to end up being a hero. But I want you to, I want you to just be watching for that. We'll go back to John after it. But today, uh, we are in John chapter 12, and uh, we are going to stand and read a section. I'm going to read a, most of it, and then I'm going to have you join me. We're going to read in John chapter 12, verses 20 through 33. I will read 20 through 26, and you join me on verse number 27, if you would, and uh, we will read God's word together. Let's let the Lord speak. May he speak to our hearts before I even preach a word. Would you stand up this morning? So let's stand up and let's read together. I will begin and then you join me on verse number 27. Now, there were certain Greeks among those who came up to worship at the feast. Then they came to Philip, who was from Bethsaida of Galilee, and asked him, saying, Sir, we wish to see Jesus. Philip came and told Andrew, and in turn, Andrew and Philip told Jesus. But Jesus answered them, saying, The hour has come that the Son of Man should be glorified. Most assuredly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the ground and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it produces much grain. He who loves his life will lose it, and he who hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. If anyone serves me, let him follow me, and where I am, there my servant will be also. If anyone serves me, him, my father, will honor. Now would you join me on 27. Now my soul is troubled, and what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour, but for this purpose I came to this hour. Father, glorify your name. Then a voice came from heaven saying, I have both glorified it and will glorify it again. Therefore, the people who stood by and heard it said that it thundered. Others said, an angel has spoken to him. Jesus answered and said, this voice did not come because of me, but for your sake. Now is the judgment of this world. Now the ruler of this world will be cast out. And if I, if I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all peoples to myself. This he said, signifying by what death he would die. Father, add your blessing to the preaching and teaching of your word this morning. Draw us to yourself in Jesus' name. Amen. You can be seated. Let me hurry into this this morning and just uh, give a little bit of the understanding of the setting. We begin the final section of John's gospel, and I call this section Jesus' Finest Hour. Time and again, at the both beginning at the wedding of Cana of Galilee, Jesus said that his hour had not yet come. But now, in verse number 23, he says the hour has come. What hour is that? Well, it's the hour of Jesus' glorification. Both Jesus and the Father indicated that this was the hour of glory. 
The passage that we didn't read, verse 12, 12 through 19, gives the story and a little bit of prophecy that gives the background of the story of the actual triumphal entry, the Palm Sunday celebration that we talk about so much. When we think of glory, we think of a spectacular presentation of some conquering hero. Rome was famous for doing this, and they must have giggled when they saw Jesus come riding in on the foal of a donkey, the offspring of a donkey, never ridden on, little spindly leg animal. Instead of coming in on a great war horse or in a chariot with a great number of people in his retinue, instead of doing that, here was Jesus and it was totally different. And so uh, just to give you an idea of how people celebrate their conquering heroes, I'd like you to look at this picture up on the screen right here. I don't know if you know what you're looking at, uh, but this event that you're looking at happened in December of 2022. Let's go to the next slide. There is a procession going on there. And what's going on is that is the reception and celebration of the Argentinian national soccer team when they were being celebrated for winning the World Cup. The crowd estimated for them in celebrating the winning of the World Cup was 4.5 million people in the streets of, of Buenos Aires in Argentina. Now, I grew up thinking that the University of Alabama had the greatest fans and the most fanatical people in the history of the world. But I'm going to tell you, nothing I've ever seen compares to what those people were doing. They just pretty much brought that country to a halt for more than a day just to do nothing. That bus is a open-top bus, and they actually had to bring a helicopter and rescue the soccer players from the bus because they couldn't, they wouldn't move. The people wouldn't get out of the way for them to keep moving to the destination. So that is quite a deal. If you're thinking that's what the Palm Sunday celebration was, wasn't quite that big. It was big, but it wasn't that big. It certainly wasn't that uh, glorious as far as uh, all of the people in the fanfare. So in our passage, Jesus, verse 12 to 19, rode into Jerusalem. Huge crowds did receive him with palm branches and with shouts of praise. What were they doing? Well, the life giver, the true grave robber. You see, they had heard about the raising of Lazarus. The miracle worker, he was coming to the feast of Passover and he is finally going public. He's no longer in hiding, no longer avoiding the limelight, no longer is he saying things like, tell no one. The crowd in Bethany, the crowds of witnesses to Lazarus' resurrection, the crowds that had gathered for the Passover, which was a big deal, up to a million people would show up there for that. All of those people came together on that Sunday and when they saw that he was coming, many of them went out and you know the story. They spread garments on the ground. They shouted, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. You have to understand that this moment of glory, think about this for a moment. We might think that when, when we read the hour has come, my glory has come, we might think that that was the glory, that Jesus considered this triumphal entry as his moment of glory. Not so at all. They were crying, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, which is a reference to an Old Testament passage. Zephaniah and Zechariah both talk about that. Hosanna, the word means save us now. Well, that's exactly what Jesus was coming to do. He was headed to Jerusalem to save them right then. He was going to do that. It was prophesied in Zechariah chapter 9 and verse 9. I wish you'd write that reference down somewhere so that you have it. Zechariah 9, 9, and 10. Here's, it's a beautiful picture of what was happening. Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you. He is just and having salvation, lowly and riding on a donkey, a colt. The foal of a donkey. 
I will cut off the chariot from Ephraim and the horse from Jerusalem. The battle bow shall be cut off. He shall speak peace to the nations. His dominion shall be from sea to sea and from the river to the ends of the earth. Clearly a prophecy of what was going on at that moment. Now I do want to declare to you this morning, and it is true and forever has been true, that Jesus is King of kings and Lord of lords. Amen. He's the king. Jesus is the king of kings. But at this point in time, he was not coming in military might to overthrow the Romans and to reestablish the Jewish nations. That's what they were shouting about. He was not coming. Please get this in your mind now. And I think Christians, we as Christians, we suffer a little bit with this here in the United States. We, we suffer with mixing Christianity and patriotism a little bit too much. Jesus was not coming for national salvation. He was coming for the salvation of the whole world. Oh, it is so important. John's first sermon that he ever preached was, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the what? world. It's so important. Jesus is the universal savior. He is the savior of the world. Now listen to me. He's not the savior of the world without exception. That would be universalism. Everybody's going to end up in heaven. No, he is the savior of the world without distinction. That's different. All nations, all people, every race, tribe, and language, and ethnicity can come to Jesus. Let me say it this way. Uh, Pride of race and pride of face and pride of elevated place, none of that impresses God and all ground is level ground at the foot of the cross. And it doesn't matter what race, what attainment, none of that matters. The only thing that matters is do you know Jesus Christ? Have you come to know him and believe in him as your Savior? So he came for all nations. Think about it this way. Matthew uses the word world, cosmos, uses the word 11 times. Mark uses the word world or cosmos four times. Luke uses it five times. John, on the other hand, uses it 78 times in 57 verses. Oh, this is the, this is the great gospel of God book in the Bible. You see, Jesus is the light of the world. Jesus is the savior of the world. Jesus is the bread of life that feeds the world. For God so loved the, it's there, isn't it? The Jews and the proselytes gathered there. They shouted, hail to the king. They were looking at him as their conqueror. He's going to throw off Rome. He's going to restore Israel. You say you're given a big background. You have to understand this picture to understand what's happening. Who could stop him if his soldiers got killed as he had already proved he could just raise those soldiers from the dead? It's significant that Jesus didn't ride in on a war horse or a majestic chariot. Nope. He rode in meekly on the foal of a donkey. Even his disciples didn't understand this in verse number 16. They're going to understand it because the Bible says in chapter 14, verse 26, Jesus promised that he was going to send the Holy Spirit who would bring all things to remembrance. Oh, do we need the ministry of the Holy Spirit in our lives? This is so before he died on the cross, the Holy Spirit could not teach them. After he died on the cross and rose again and he dispensed the Holy Spirit, they remembered. And I just want to tell you, please, in order to be able to remember what God has said, you have to keep taking in what God has said. I've encouraged you and Pastor Matt and Jonathan, everybody has encouraged you, read through the scriptures this year. Read it in a version you haven't read before so it's fresh. Read it. And as you're reading it, the Holy Spirit can bring things 
to remembrance. And I'll just say this as a side note, spiritual activity of the Holy Spirit in your life, whether he is convicting of sin, convincing of righteousness, or whether he is bringing things to remembrance, spiritual activity is the strongest evidence of your salvation that God is in you, that he is working. So it is so very important. Now, something else is significant. While the people were celebrating and rejoicing and giving each other high fives, so to speak, Jesus was doing something else altogether. He's on the little foal of a donkey. He's riding in. He's acknowledging the praise, but his tears are running down his face. Listen to Luke chapter 19, verse 41, a parallel passage. As he drew near, he saw the city and he wept over it. What? He's weeping. If you had known even you, especially in this your day, the things that make for peace, but now they are hidden from you for days will come when you, upon you, when your enemies will build an embankment around you, surround you and close you in on every side and they will level you and your children within you to the ground and they will not leave you one stone on another because you did not know the time of your visitation. Jesus was weeping over Jerusalem because their destruction was coming. So this emotional outpouring, this praise him, this, this hail him. I mean, this is, oh, they, they were just sure this is it. It's time for, it's time for the supremacy of the nation to rise once again. We're going to be sovereign. One author said it this way about these people. He said, this emotional outpouring would soon change from hail him, hail him to nail him, nail him. The very same crowd is quickly going to go from glorify to crucify. And as Jesus entered the city on Palm Sunday and the other gospels recorded, he once again went in and cleansed the temple of the money changers, the thieves and the robbers. No sooner did he get there, he upset them more. So here's what this story went like. It went just like this. From Bethany's beautiful moments that we preached about a few weeks ago when Mary poured out the ointment. We have, first of all, a parade, verse number 12. We have praise offered in verse number 13. We have prophecy fulfilled, verse 14 to 16. Prophecies of Zephaniah and Zechariah. Popularity observed, verse 17 and 18. And then we have the protest of the Pharisees in verse number 19. The Pharisees therefore said among themselves, you see that you're accomplishing nothing. Look, the world has gone after him. We're losing out here. They were so upset. Then something happened, and this is the subject of my sermon today. I want to preach to you for the next few minutes on this subject. That was a big setup, I understand, but you got to understand what was going on. I want to preach to you on this one little phrase, we want to see Jesus. Look at verse number 20, or verse number, uh, let's see. Yeah, verse 20. Now, there were certain Greeks among those who came to worship at the feast, and they came to Philip, who was from Bethsaida of Galilee, and they asked him, saying, sir, we wish to see Jesus. Jesus, and I wrote it down this way, the switch flipped. You say, what? The switch flipped. Up until this point, he had been saying, it's not my hour, it's not my hour, it's not my hour. My hour has not come, my hour has not come. Now he says, the hour has come. The time is now. Well, why did that have anything to do with it? Well, the Greeks came and said, we want to see Jesus. The non-Jews came and said, we want to see Jesus. They approached Philip, who had a Greek name, They thought maybe that would give them an in with Jesus. And so they spoke to him. He found Andrew. They went and talked to Jesus. These Jews had always wanted to see a sign, but these Greeks and Gentiles, they just wanted to see Jesus. I'll just pull over and say that that's what the world really needs to see today. The world needs to see Jesus. Need to see him, hear about him, know him, need to come to him. These Jews were God's chosen people. 
but they weren't chosen so they could say we're better than everybody else. They were chosen to be a light to the nations, but they kept it to themselves. So when Andrew and Philip informed Jesus that the Greeks desired to see him, he responded like this. And this is the rest of the sermon. This is how he responded. (laughs) He said, verse number 23, they said to him, the Greeks want to see you. Everybody wants to see you. He says, okay, the hour has come that the son of man should be glorified. Then he goes on with this whole discourse. Well, that seemed like he didn't even answer their question. He didn't say, yeah, sure, come on in, come on. No, no, no. He just, that was a moment in time when no longer is it just about the Jews, according to their thinking, but now then it's about everyone and it's for everyone. So it was time, first of all, for Jesus to be glorified. Somebody might think, well, that's exactly what the people were doing. They were giving him praise and glory. No, not exactly. They are praising him because they thought he was giving them relief, an earthly kingdom. He was giving them lives that would be easier. They were praising him because he was pleasing them, giving them what they wanted. If there's anything that has infected Christianity, it's the thought that God's real purpose in life is to put padded bumpers on my life from the time I'm born to the time I die and make me have an easy life. Well, folks, Jesus didn't come to, he didn't come to make sure life was easy for 70 years. He came to give us eternal life in heaven with him, both quality and quantity. So it's time for Jesus to be glorified. And so here's how how it happened. Jesus was glorified by being planted in death, planted in death. And we read that. It says in verse number 24, most assuredly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the ground and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it produces much grain. So the prince of life, the giver of life is going to die. And by his death, many will come alive. Jesus chose the illustration from agriculture. He used it. We understand it, especially people here in Iowa. A grain of wheat is planted, but it dies. In doing so, it gives life to many grains of wheat. There wouldn't be a farmer on the planet that would plant one grain of corn to get one grain of corn. But it is as the grain of corn is buried, the husk deteriorates and it, cu- and it gives, begins to, to put down roots and to grow a stalk. And then what does it produce? It produces much, much more. And so Jesus said, I'm like this grain of wheat. I'm going to be planted. I'm going to die. And then I'm going to bring many to life. Praise God he did. How many of you are alive today because Jesus died? Raise your hand. Amen. But make sure you're following. You say, this is a theological sermon. Look, I'm just preaching what's in the word of God as I come to it. It is theological, but get it, sink your teeth into this. Jesus died and he brought life to many. He brought life to everyone who ever believes on the Lord Jesus Christ. It releases life in abundance. Death gives life. The Jewish leaders thought they were putting Jesus to death and that that would be the end of his influence. Oh no, dear friend. Jesus' finest hour is wrapped up in the gospel story of the cross. It is his victory. And when he said it is finished and when we find an empty tomb, that's his glory. His glory is not the, sh- the crowd shouting, Hosanna. No, they didn't understand. The glorious moment was when he cried, it is finished, and he paid for our sins and his death offered for us, dying for our sins so that we could live. Something else here that you just can't miss. Let me read 25 and 6 together. 
who loves his life, will, in verse 24, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the ground, it dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it produces much grain. He who loves his life will lose it. And he who late, hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. If anyone serves me, let him follow me. Where I am, there my servant will be also. If anyone serves me, him my father will honor. Verse number 24 is about dying, to, uh, about death of Jesus. Verse 25 is about me choosing Jesus over holding on to everything in this life. Verse 26 is the result of choosing Jesus, what my life is going to look like. Jesus is glorified when his disciples are planted in death. What? Wait a minute. Is this a general call to martyrdom? Well, no, not literal physical martyrdom. Not everybody is called to physically die. Now, our Lives are expendable for the Lord, and God does call upon many people to die for him. In fact, as I read the voice of the martyrs lately, there are more people dying for their faith right now around the world than any time in history. They're dying for their faith, literally. God has called some to physical death, and it may increase, but first century historians report that all of them but John was martyred for their faith, literally died for it. John didn't die, but he was boiled in oil and somehow survived. Romans 12, 1 gives us an idea. It says we're to present our bodies as living sacrifices, not dying sacrifices. This statement in verse 25 is not a one-time statement by Jesus. It's not the only time he ever says this. He says it in Matthew 10, 39, Mark 8, 35, Luke 9, 24. They say exactly the same thing. So what is Jesus talking about? He says, love your life, hate your life, eternal life. What is he talking about? Well, first of all, we're talking about salvation. It says in this, it says the words, the world in, and again here in this passage and also in verse 31 where Satan, the ruler of this world, is cast out. We know the Bible says here in John 3, for God so loved the world as in the people in it. Uh, we are not to love this world. We're not to love the system of this world and the substance of this world. We don't fall in love with the planet. And I know that's just all in vogue right now. Let's just, you know, hug a tree, save the planet, do what you got to do. Hey, I'm all for good stewardship of what God has put in for us to invest. But we're not supposed to bow down to anything but God Almighty and his son, Jesus Christ. Amen. We don't worship anything but him. Now, listen, there's two parables that clarify this so clearly. One is about a man who inherited property and it produced a bumper crop. And so to handle the bumper crop, he built bigger barns uh, to keep his abundance. And then he began trusting in his abundance for his future hope. He said, eat, drink, be merry, blah, blah, blah. He says, you got goods saved up for many, many years. Luke 12, 16 to 21, Jesus finished it by saying, you're a fool. Who's gonna have all these things? Because tonight your soul is required of you. Again, in Luke 18, 18 to 27, there was a rich young ruler who was faced with the fact that his money and possessions were of greater value to him than eternal life. And he finished this way, for what profit is it to gain a, for a man if he gains the whole world and he loses his own soul? Now, folks, we don't trade our stuff for, stuff for salvation, but we don't serve our stuff and we don't provide for our own salvation. Stuff won't save you. Accomplishments won't save you. Accolades won't save you. Becoming, becoming noted for something won't save you. The only thing that saves you is dying. Dying to all your own efforts and believing in Jesus and the efforts that he put forth 
when he died for us. Now, we're also talking about being fruitful. Look again. Most assuredly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the ground and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it produces much fruit. Now, that's Jesus. He's going to die for us. Look at verse 25. He who loves his life will lose it. He who hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. If anyone serves me, that's the next statement. We're talking about being fruitful. You know, if we love the stuff and the system of the world, we can't follow Jesus. The Bible says in Luke 9, 23, it says clearly, Jesus said to them, if anyone desires to come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross daily and follow me. For whoever desires to save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will save it. In this case, something has to die in order for me to be fruitful. Something has to die in order for me to be fruitful, just like the grain of wheat. So what is it that has to die? Well, self has to die. Self. Selfish ambition has to die. The Apostle Paul said it this way in Galatians 2.20. Look, I have been crucified with Christ. Now, folks, he was not on the backside of the cross. He didn't get literally hung up there with nails like Jesus did. Nevertheless, he identified with it spiritually. He says, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. In the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Almost the entire chapter of Romans 6 is about death to self, death to the old man, death to the old ways. I think we underestimate sometimes what Jesus is asking us to do. I want to say this to you. I think we do. Jesus does not want to be the Lord of the weekend, the Lord of Sunday morning for a couple of hours. Jesus wants to be Lord of all, all our days, everything. He is Lord. Let me double down on that. If you will confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus Christ and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. The Lord, he is the Lord. He is the owner, the master. He's the redeemer. He is the one. He is the Lord. He is the Lord God. And you don't offer the Lord a little bit of your life. No, 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 no. That's not, he, listen, let's not make any mistake about it. He's not saying, look, I just want you to trust in me because I just love to save you. I just love to keep you out of hell. I want you to go. And so just let me do it. Oh, please, please, please let me. That is the most ridiculous thing on earth. Jesus said, I am Lord God Almighty. I have come to this earth to die in your place, to, to, to hang myself on a cross, to take your sins upon myself. And I'm dying in your place and I'm calling you to myself and I'm calling you to follow me. Listen to this. My sheep hear my voice. And what do they do? They, oh, oh, this is just, we're talking about following Jesus. To serve him, we follow him. My sheep hear my voice. And where Jesus is, we will be. I'm going to unpack that in a moment. Number two, it was time for the Father to be glorified. Time for the Father to be glorified. Jesus glorified the Father through his obedience. He always did those things that pleased the Father, John 8, 29. Isaiah 53, 10, this young group that sang a few moments ago, sang, they actually mentioned this in the last song they sang. Isaiah 53, 10 says, it pleased the Lord to bruise him. So Jesus is facing this now. It's time for the Father to be glorified. And so Jesus faced the coming cross. It's going to be very, very hard. Verse 27 says, now my soul is troubled. And you can place all of the events that you read about in Matthew, Mark, and Luke in Gethsemane. You can place all of those events in that phrase. Now my soul is troubled. 
Jesus went through great agony in the Garden of Gethsemane. He experienced the loneliness of the moment as his friends and his disciples kept falling asleep while he was in agony. These men, they were the ones he loved and trained and in whom he had invested the future of the gospel, but they were sleeping. He faced something else. He faced his humanity. He is the God-man. He is all God. He is all man. He condescended to this earth and he took upon himself the form of human flesh. It says the word was made flesh. John 1.14, Philippians 2.7 says that he was found in the form of a man and became obedient to death, even the death of the cross. So he did this. He confined divinity in the robe of humanity. You say, why did he do that? Because if he's going to die for our sins, there has to be some capacity in which he can die. Divinity cannot die. So he has to do it as a sacrifice and humanity can die. So somebody said this, somebody said in confining divinity in the robe of humanity, somebody said it this way, it would be like playing Handel's Messiah on a kazoo. But God did it because we beheld his glory as the only begotten of the father, full of grace and truth. The pain that is coming on him is immense, intense, and unrelenting. There's going to be indignity and mockery. There's going to be a crown. There's going to be a flogging. There's going to be nails and there's going to be a cross. And in our likeness and with capacity to feel our pain, he headed to the cross. He fulfilled as well then the purpose of his father. Oh, this is so powerful. And look what it says. He says, what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour, but for this purpose I came forth. He fulfilled the purpose. What shall I say? This is when he prayed in the garden, Lord, if it is possible for this cup to pass for me, if it can be done any other way, please let it. But nevertheless, not my will, but thine be done. What shall I say, Father? I don't want to do this. Am I going to stop short now of accomplishing his purpose? No. He said, Father, not my will, but your will be done. And he completed the reason for which he came to the earth. The Bible says on several occasions, he set his face like a flint toward Jerusalem. He was going to Jerusalem no matter what. Jesus didn't die in the wilderness when the devil was attacking him and he was so hungry. Jesus did not die when they would find him doing something on the Sabbath. They would try to seize him to kill him or pick up stones whenever he, uh, whenever he was there saying that before Abraham was, I am. They, they wanted to kill him anywhere at any time. They wanted to kill him. The devil wanted him to die anywhere but in Jerusalem at the cross. But he didn't. And he brought glory to his father, this obedience to death, the death of the cross Brought glory to the Father. And so here's what happened. At the cross, wrath and love, justice and mercy, truth and grace, guilt and forgiveness are on display, suspended between heaven and earth. Jesus' prayer was, Father, glorify your name. The Father's answer was, I have and I will do it again. I've glorified it and I will glorify it again. Three times in the Bible, the Father spoke audibly about his Son to his Son so that people could hear it. At his baptism, at the transfiguration and in answer to this prayer. Father, glorify your name. And he says, I have through everything you've done on earth and your obedience through your words, your works. And I will again because you're gonna be crucified and die for the sins of the whole world. So you see, it was time now for judgment of the world and Satan as well. Verse 30 and 31, Jesus answered, the voice has not come because of me, but for your sake. Now is the judgment of this world. Now is the ruler of this world to be cast out. The world system 
was judged at the cross. You say, what is the world system? Well, it's the way things work. Listen to this. First John, same author, same biblical writer. First John 2.15, do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. What's in the world then? Well, here it is. For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life is not of the Father, but is of the world. So what then? And the world is passing away in the lust of it, but he who does the will of God abides forever. Let me just say this to you. Been a lot of bridges built across many expanses in this world. Been beautiful buildings built, stadiums built, where great you know, great cathedrals of sport where they come together. There've been, there've been amazing accomplishments in science and in medicine. They're just incredible things that have been, God has allowed the accumulation of knowledge, even in the medical field alone to do amazing things and great edifices and great accomplishments. And we've been to the moon. Guess what? And the world is passing away. But listen to this. But you don't. How many of you believe in the Lord Jesus Christ today? Say amen. amen. Well, he, do, he that does the will of the Father. What is the will of the Father? John chapter 6, that you see the Son and you believe in him. And everyone that believes in him has everlasting life. You are eternal and will be with him forever. The world is passing away, but you're not. Aren't you glad that God saved you today? Oh, we have the eternal promise of God. It is so beautiful. The system of sensual indulgent appetites and lust to possess and arrogance and attainment was judged. Something else was judged right there at the cross. The world's God was cast out at the cross. Kind of confuses some people, but the God of this world, the ruler of the prince of the power of the air, God has allowed Satan some authority. We can talk about the fall of Satan from his original post in heaven. Maybe that's what it's about. He was the anointed cherub. He had, he had responsibilities of protecting the throne of God. He was Lucifer. He was the light of heaven. He was the great musician of heaven. Maybe that's it. Or maybe we can talk about the future banishment from God's presence, the fall. Revelation chapter 12, at a point in the future, I believe the midpoint of the tribulation, when Michael rises, the great prince of the people of Israel rises, goes into the heaven and there's war in heaven and Satan, Lucifer, the slanderer, the old devil, the ancient serpent, he is cast out. He can no longer slander. He can no longer accuse day and night the children of the kingdom. He cannot accuse them anymore because God's fed up with it and out with you and Michael throws him out. Maybe we're talking about that. I don't think so. When he talks about this ruler of the world being cast out, I think he's talking about he is being cast out of the human hearts of those that have come to believe in Jesus by faith. Now, I just want to say this to you this morning. I want you to understand this from the, just from the bottom of my soul to the, to the depth of your heart. I want you to understand that we are no longer obligated to the devil once Jesus has saved us from our sins. Once he's come to live in our heart, Satan has been cast out. He, he can't obligate you. He has no authority. He can't set up his kingdom inside your life, inside your heart, inside your spirit. He cannot do that any longer because Satan has been cast out. The spirit, the evil spirit of Satan has been, is gone and removed. And who has come in? The the Holy Spirit of God has 
come in and he's powerful and he has authority and you do not have to yield to anger and to hate and to jealousy and to envy and to worry and to fret. We do not, we are not obligated. We are not under the power of. Satan has no authority in your life. We just need to appeal to Jesus and appeal to the spirit of God. He will help us. Amen. Listen to me. You do not have to yield all the time. Satan's going to keep trying, but you don't have to yield. Because he was cast out. Jesus paid for your sin. You're talking about the hour of glory. This is the hour of glory. When you were bought with a price, Jesus died for you. We're free, we're emancipated, liberated from sin's penalty and power. And oh, we always need to live live that way. It's time for Jesus to be lifted up. This is the final thought, 32 and 33. Sir, we wish to see Jesus. This lifting up has been the theme all along. Back in 314 and 828, he talked about as the serpent in the wilderness was lifted up. By lifting up, it certainly means that Jesus would be crucified. It says so in verse number 33. But the world, for the world to see Jesus, he must be lifted up and exalted. This is the main application point of everything I've said this morning. We must not point to ourselves. We must point people to Jesus at the cross. We must, as believers, talk about his wonderful words and his miraculous works and his moral example. Those are all vital. But we must talk about the cross. Because I want you to know that no sins on planet earth were atoned for until the cross. Nobody's sins were paid for and removed until the cross. So what do I need to do? How, what, 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 is it? What, what is this thing? How, how can I lift up Christ? What do I have to do in my life? How, how is he lifted up today? Well, look, folks, he's not hanging on the cross today. We don't point to a cross where he hangs. We point to a cross where he was. And I just want to encourage you, don't, don't be tricked and don't be duped into putting a crucifix in your house. Don't have a cross with Jesus on it anywhere. If you want a cross, we even gave them away here at the church, those white crosses, and just demonstrate that there's nobody on the cross. Have all the crosses you want, but you don't want Jesus still on the cross because Jesus is not on the cross anymore. He was buried and he rose again and he sits at the right hand of the Father and he dispensed the Holy Spirit to you and to me in this world. And because the Holy Spirit is in us, we don't have to give in to that old slave master. We can live different. So what do I need to do? Forget self. Fruitfulness is costly. It is in dying that we become life givers. And brethren, something must die for Christ to be lifted up in my life. Pride, selfish ambition, greed, anger, jealousy, whatever it is, 2 Corinthians 4.12. So then death is working in us, but life in you, Paul said. 1 Corinthians 15, I affirm by the boasting in you, which I have in Christ Jesus our Lord, I die daily. Something's gotta die, forget self. Follow Jesus. Boy, this is the passage of scripture that captured my heart this week. I, I was running around. I grabbed Kirby and Marty and Matt and anybody I could. It was one of those Baptocostal moments. It just gets a hold of me. I want you to see this here in verse number 26. And if anyone serves me, let him follow me. And where I am, there my servant will be also. Where I am, there my servant will be Also, servants follow Jesus and they can be found where Jesus is. So if I'm going to follow Jesus, where might I be, where might Jesus be found and where might I be accompanying Jesus? Well, they can be found at the bedside of a suffering saint. They can be found in conversation with people like Zacchaeus 
in conversation with the woman of bad reputation at Simon's house. Like they can be found talking to the homeless and to the religious Pharisees, to people of great contagion and sickness. They can be found with the dying. They can be found feeding the hungry, helping the sick, providing for widows and orphans. They can be found going across the street and around the world. This is the definition of a disciple. He denies himself and he elevates Jesus. I was reading a book this week on missions and it told the story about a man <clears throat> who was a representative of a mission who wanted to go and make a visit on a mission compound in Congo. And so he went. It was so remote and it took him so long to get there that when he got there, he said, look, brother, brethren, says you folks are hidden out here. And the missionary said, no, let me correct you. We have not been hidden out here. We are planted out here. And this leads me to say something to everybody that's in this room this morning. We, 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 we got, you see, we're followers of Jesus. And where Jesus is, that's where we want to be. And I just, I just want to say this to all of us this morning. There's not a single happenstance, incidence, or, or coincidence in your life. There's nothing about your life that is just an uh-oh. God doesn't get up and say, oh, didn't know that was going to happen. No, no. Every single at who you are, where you are, your abilities, your limitations, your talents, whatever, the, everything about you, the people you know, the, the family that you were born in, the place that you live, the place you work, the, place, the neighbors that you have, the encounters that you have, every single one of those are a planting of God. You've been planted. It's another sermon that I could preach. But we've been planted. You see, we are the good seed of the kingdom that he plants wherever he will. It's, there's no accidents with God. And if the world's going to see Jesus, he's gotta, they've got to see Jesus in the children of the kingdom that have been planted. And you see, we like seeds have got to die to ourselves. We've got to live for the purpose for which we were made. And we've got to speak up for Jesus. We need to elevate and magnify Jesus. He is our message. His cross is our glory. Galatians 6, 14. God forbid that I should boast except in the cross of my Lord Jesus by whom the world has been crucified to me and out of the world. Folks, it's not our methods. It's not our programs. It's not our buildings. But it's our Jesus that people are looking for. Mark 1, 37 says, when they found him, Jesus was praying. When they found him, he, they said to him, he said, everybody's looking for you. And I'm going to tell you, the world's looking for a lot. And they don't know what they're looking for or who they're looking for, but they're looking for Jesus. Oh, what now, pastor? What, what can I do with this? Just as a close, would you ask yourself this? Is there something that needs to die about me? Is there something? about me that needs to die? Is there a wicked association, an inappropriate relationship? Is there a goal, an ambition, an attitude? Have you put conditions on your discipleship? Okay, Lord, I follow you, but keep your hands off this. Are you holding something back? Are you going with Jesus? Are you ready to go with him where he leads? We used to sing it. Jan, I see you sitting over there with Mark. Where he leads me, I will follow. Remember that? How many of us are lying our faces off when we sing it? Or how about this one? I surrender all. Remember that one? I see Judy sitting over there. Judy, how many times did you sing I surrender all? It was an invitation song. Remember that? I surrender all. Did we? Do we? Do we believe it? You see, where Jesus is, his servants will be. Oh, my word. 
Mm. Are you going with Jesus? Are you ready to go with him? Who or what is getting the glory? Who or what is being lifted up as itself for the Savior? Maybe this last question really rings home to all of us. Do you want to be honored by the Father? Look at verse number 26. If anyone serves me, Jesus is speaking. If anyone serves me, him my Father will honor. Do you want to be honored by the Father? Or do we want to seek the praise of people? Hmm. We want to see Jesus. If the world's going to see Jesus, then he must increase. And I must decrease. Would you bow your heads and close your eyes? Dear Father, I thank you so much for this passage of Scripture. As I prayed and said in the first service, even as I preached this sermon, boy, did I need this one. Lord, you tend to take me to the woodshed from time to time as I study to preach. And this is one of those moments, Lord, this passage where Jesus is, there I'll be. Lord, help me to live it that way. Thank you for this crowd. Thank you for these people. I pray for every person here this morning. I pray for those that have yet to come to know you as personal Savior. They have yet to step across the faith line. They have yet to say, I believe, Jesus, you are Lord. I believe that you died for my sins. I believe that you were buried and rose again. And it was because of my sin you died. And today I believe they have not done that yet. I pray that today would be the day. I pray also for all of us, Lord, that have already named the name of Jesus. I pray that we would stop letting Christianity be a tacked-on weekend um, um, thing that we do, a hobby. I pray, Father, our Christianity would be not something we do, but who we are. Thank you so very much for your word. Apply it to our hearts. Help us to go where you go. In Jesus' name, amen.